Welcome to the Faith at Work podcast. I'm Pastor Jim Melvin. The messages of Faith at Work address spiritual, religious, and scriptural issues with practical value for your life at work or at home. I invite you to join me each week in exploring the questions which defy easy answers. What's the purpose of my life? Why is there so much suffering in the world? How can I become the best version of myself? We'll often be turning to scripture, other sources of religious wisdom, and the events of everyday life to help us in our spiritual quest. I try to relate without prejudice to people of all religious traditions and those who claim no religious allegiance at all. Like my last episode, The Silver Airplane, today I tell a personal story from my early life that I hope once again you will enjoy and can maybe relate to your life in a meaningful way. The story begins and ends with my father. It's not a dark story, as many father stories are, of an absent or abusive man. My father was a good man. He worked hard every day, and he came home every night. He was a kind and gentle man. I can't remember him ever raising his voice to me, let alone his fist or an open hand. Dad worked as a school custodian for over 40 years. Looking back, I would never say that he was just a custodian. For all those years, he nursed two crumbling brick buildings through their final years of useful life. He stoked their coal furnaces against the brutal Iowa winters. Every summer, he varnished their honey-colored hardwood floors and natted new enamel layers to decades of gray lead paint on student chairs. He wiped noses and buckled boots of little kids who would return to greet him on their first visit home from college. They loved Mr. Melvin. He was a teacher among teachers. He was a father to many. His name was Emil, but throughout those around who knew him called him Mel. I never knew if that familiar name derived from Emil or Melvin. And those from southern Illinois where he grew up called him Bucky, a name which my mother hated because it originated in what she considered his degenerate youth spent drinking moonshine alcohol and riding horses down the sidewalk of Main Street in West Frankfort, Illinois. He was 45 years old when I was born, with his bucky days well behind him. So I knew him as Mel. I called him Daddy, until that felt childish and he became simply Dad. Now only a few faded black and white pictures remained to give me a glimpse into the identity of Bucky. And even those, in actuality, reflect the Bucky-Mel transitional period since they were taken in Iowa after his marriage to my mother. In one picture, which today rests in a curio cabinet in our living room, he strikes a cocky mobster-like pose with one foot on the running board of a Ford convertible. His shiny black curls spill onto his forehead, and he sports, yes, sports is the spot-on term, a double-breasted pinstripe suit. In my childhood, Mel wore a suit only for a few hours on the occasional Sunday when we attended church, to which he drove us in an aqua 1961 Chevrolet Biscayne with a stuttering six-cylinder engine and a three on the column. By 1963, the automatic transmission was the way to go, but now our family was constrained by fiscal conservatism that limited his choices in vehicles. 
Mel dressed the rest of the time in a baggy khaki work pants with matching short-sleeved shirts purchased at Sears. The rare variation consisted of slightly darker green work pants with a slightly darker green matching work shirt. And by the way, khaki or slightly darker green, his clothes were always immaculate and neatly pressed thanks to my mother, who enforced a certain Germanic order in our household. The other Bucky-esque portrait of my father finds him standing astride a burgundy tank Indian motorcycle with a suicide shift. I'm told that he owned a Harley at one point, but I've never even seen a picture of it, just as I've never seen a picture of the saxophone, which he reportedly wailed on at one time in his life. Now, motorcycles and saxophones are so alien to the male of my recollections that I begin to suspect a meteorite must have struck the earth around the time I was born and altered the fabric of history and morphed Bucky into Mel. I should mention one other element of Mel's style, his eyewear. He wore the iconic black Chiron Ronzier browline glasses. The revolutionary Chiron Ronzier, developed in 1947 by Jack Rohrbach, accounted for the vast majority of frames worn by dirty engineers and businessmen of the 50s. Today, they're worn mainly by stylish hipster waiters and waitresses in urban restaurants. For Mel, the Chiron Ronzier was a choice born of, born of function rather than style. The metal nose piece was infinitely adjustable with a rusty pair of needle-nose pliers readily retrieved from his workbench. He'd fashioned comfortable earpieces, from white insulation stripped from electrical wire. I wear the same glasses today, not out of any hipster pretense, but as an homage to Mel. Dad was a philosopher, pure and simple. His most productive hours of contemplation occurred early in the morning in the furnace room of Washington Elementary School, where he would sit smoking, rocking comfortably in an ancient armed desk chair which he had rescued from a Washingtonian second-grade teacher years before. The smell of his fresh cigarette smoke blended pleasingly with the oily aroma emanating from heaps of shiny black coal in the nearby bin in summer, and with the sulfurous smoke from the nearby furnace when it was burning and belching that same coal through the winter. Coal was a part of his life, or their life, both Bucky and Mel. He involuntarily carried a piece of it with him as a souvenir. He started working in the deep shaft mines under West Frankfort, Illinois, at 12 years old. A jagged chunk, which fell as a result of a methane explosion, knocked him unconscious and left him and a hundred other miners trapped underground for three days. His souvenir of that tragedy was a BB-sized shard of anthracite embedded in his forehead above his left eye. That bluish speck was visible his whole life and always evoked in me images of that suffocating dangers threatening a mere child forced to work the deep mines in order to fuel the engine of American industrial growth. Dad welcomed my presence in his furnace room slash philosopher's den. Some early Saturday mornings I would accompany him to work. My mother would send along an egg sandwich served on white bread, sopped with butter. I would unwrap the still warm delicacy from its protective wax paper, while Dad went to the nearby lunchroom to retrieve a carton of chocolate milk from the cooler for me to drink. Free chocolate milk 
and an occasional ream of multicolor construction paper or a jar of paste liberated from the art supply closet were the slightly guilty perks of the job. Butternut coffee percolated noisily in a silver pot on the workbench from which he would pour cup after cup after cup of thick black intellectual fuel. Savoring the spongy egg sandwiches was the first order of business. Satisfying the daily need for salt and fat prepared the mind for serious matters for consideration. The rest, to quote the Jewish scholar Hillel, is commentary. Let me interrupt myself. My dad, I am absolutely 100% sure, had never heard of the Jewish scholar Hillel. His formal education ended in the eighth grade with his descent into the mines. He would have received up to that point rudimentary training in reading, penmanship, and arithmetic, which makes this man's knowledge and wisdom even more extraordinary to me, on a par with the likes of Abraham Lincoln, whose origins, come to think of it, were not far removed in time and place from Bucky Melvin. This is the miracle and mystery of education in simpler days. Considering the time and effort that have been expended on my formal learning, I feel small and inadequate, or at least spoiled. Well, back to the philosopher's den. Dad employed two primary educational methods in my instruction. First, he related stories from his life from which I was to draw my own moral, social, and philosophical conclusions. His secondary method was expository, through which he shared the conclusions that he had drawn from his life experiences. In these lessons, he spoke humbly but authoritatively. He told me directly how he thought I should live my life. And you know, I should add a third teaching method. He taught by example. Many of his teaching stories came from Bucky or Bucky days or Mel's early days. I guess they had to marinate and age to gain narrative perfection, not to mention that distance from the events is an excuse for embellishment. My remembrance of those stories is in the form of vivid images, many of which are gruesome. Bucky witnessed the labor disputes which erupted frequently in southern Illinois during the 1920s. I can still see him taking a sip of coffee as he prepared to launch into a recollection of one particularly violent-filled night. He described seeing the head of a scab at one of the mines being paraded down the dirt main street of Heron, Illinois, to the shouts and jeers of the crowds. Mel bumps the ash from his cigarette. His brow furrows as though decades later he struggles to make sense of the hatred that had led his friends, neighbors, and probably family, to revert to such brutal behavior. When I call up that image today, I share his puzzlement, and I can't help but wonder what role Bucky Melvin played in that drama. Another, even more pernicious and enduring brand of violence haunted him. He described witnessing a public lynching of a black man who had violated the local sundown laws, and how the victim's bulging eyes stared out at his murderers even after the last mortal twitch subsided from his broken body. It was a reminder that Southern Illinois, in most ways, belonged more to the Jim Crow South than to the Yankee-dominated Midwest, where he would eventually settle. Mel retained not a trace of Southern accent. I'm sure his strict German in-laws in Iowa cured him of that. My uncle Fred and the rest of the Melvin clan 
which we would visit on occasion, spoke with a noticeable drawl. But he retained a deep love of biscuits and gravy, and I wonder if eating them conjured up images of those accusatory eyes staring down from that tree. As I said, my dad was a gentleman, which leads me to suppose that he was also tortured by memories. The more direct lessons my father sought to teach me on those mornings often had to do with the meaning of work and life's purpose. Here, too, there was a practical demonstration of the lessons to be learned. At some point, after the sandwiches were eaten and before he had swallowed adequate amounts of coffee, we, Mel and I, would have to load the stoker, a red metal box from which an auger fed coal into the firebox. Under his careful supervision, I would scoop manageable shovels of coal into the stoker, tamp it down carefully with a tool specifically designed for the purpose, and clear away any of the black nuggets that might interfere with the closing of the stoker lid. What might be considered dirty, menial labor was done neatly and with precision. Once the stoker was filled, Mel, wearing thick canvas gloves, swung open the heavy iron door which separated us from the bowels of white-hot hell inside the furnace. The rusty hinge squealed demonically as the rusty maw resisted his pull. He cautioned me to stand back as he artfully banked the clinkers to maintain the fire at an even and sustainable level. This he accomplished with a six-foot-long clinker grabber. For the modern reader, the clinker grabber demands description. The tool was made of two pieces, an iron pipe with two claws welded to one end, and a slightly longer iron rod with a reverse single claw welded to it, so when the rod was fully inserted into the pipe, they formed a mechanical hand with an opposable thumb. A metal loop fashioned at the other end of the rod allowed the user to open and close the claws around the clinkers, clinkers being the fused metal residual lumps produced by the hot burning coal. The method for disposal of the clinkers I will reserve for a later equally interesting regression. With the furnace comfortably digesting its now adequate serving of coal, and my practicum complete for the day, we could return to more abstract matters concerning work. The overarching theme of my dad's lessons about work can be summed up in one simple sentence. Work at a job you like. The example of his own life made up the curriculum. He hated the mines which he escaped by going into the army where he served as a cook. He considered himself fortunate to have been stationed stateside during the interbellum period, but peeling piles of potatoes failed to hold his interest. He made it clear, however, that in retrospect, culinary boredom suited him better than dying in the trenches of Flanders Field or the beaches of D-Day Normandy. Discharged honorably from the army, Bucky migrated to Fort Madison, Iowa, where he had secured a job as a prison guard, a job he obtained through a military connection. Now, I've already stated that Dad was a kind and gentle person. Prison guards, he told me, were neither. He didn't last long. He uncharacteristically spared me the stories of the events that prodded him to move further north to take a job in a related state institution, the Independent State Mental Health Hospital, or MHI as it was affectionately known to the residents 
of Independence, Iowa. That transfer was facilitated by the kindly warden at the prison, who had quickly figured out that Mel wasn't mean enough or brutal enough for the job. The Independent State Hospital buildings occupied a sprawling campus a mile west of town. The complex's stately cream brick buildings with black mansard roofs belied a darker reality within. That darker reality is better expressed in MHI's original name, the Independence Lunatic Asylum. It was established in 1873 to house or imprison alcoholics, geriatrics, drug addicts, mentally ill, and the criminally insane. A warren of limestone tunnels connected the buildings. At the time of my father's arrival, MHI served over 1,500 inmates. MHI was an economy into itself. Patients toiled in the cornfields, dairy farms, bakery, laundry, and all other occupations necessary for the operations of this lunatic city. Dad started as an orderly on a ward for the criminally insane. He supervised a crew of men who wheelbarrowed large chunks of coal which had arrived by a railroad hopper car to the mouth of a conveyor that fed into a giant crusher below. He hadn't worked that job long when a patient approached the conveyor to dump his load but instead tossed the wheelbarrow aside and dived head, dived head first into the crusher. The inmate's body emerged two inches thick considerably wider than when it had entered, and punched full of holes. Looked like a minute steak, Dad chortled. It obviously hadn't been funny at the time, because Dad soon had himself transferred to the groundskeeping department. In that role, he made a lasting impact on independence and MHI. He was tasked with planting elm trees on both sides of the boulevard that led from town to the hospital. By the time I was born, that mile-long cinder-covered road coal cinders, of course, was arched o'er by those stately trees. Unfortunately, the trees all succumbed to the ravages of Dutch elm disease in the 1970s. Dad managed to stay that job for several years, even though one of his jobs involved digging graves for inmates who died without anyone to claim them. In typical Mel fashion, he had a horror story about that, too. He once had to disinter a particularly ripe body for transfer to a private cemetery. Never been able to get that smell of death out of my nose, he said. The smell of a dead person is like nothing else. Too bad Mel never turned his macabre hand to horror writing. He had a flair. While working at MHI, Bucky met my mother, Anna Schmidtkans. Her father, Henry, a German immigrant, served as a head baker for nearly half century at MHI. Anna worked the violent ward. She had more of a stomach for the unpleasantries of life than Dad. She probably could have hacked that prison guard job if she had to. Only late in life, years after Dad died, did she disclose to me that the two of them had to elope. The Schmidtkons' Orthodox Lutheranism did not mix well with the half-hearted Melvin Southern Baptist faith Dad brought north with him. After my brother Bill was born... Bill was 17 years my elder. The two of them left MHI, and my dad knocked around in an assortment of jobs, slaughtering hogs at Rath Packing in Waterloo, a short stint working nights at a Waterloo bakery, and then working for the Buchanan County Road Crew, which included the cold and hazardous job of plowing roads in the winter. 
winters were much harsher than you know. Finally, after all those aborted careers, he found his bliss in the furnace room at Washington Elementary. Through his journey, he learned the simple lesson that he passed on to me. Work at a job you like. His prescription for the happy life. I remember him once having his resolve tested in this regard. August Horn, the head custodian of the school district, was retiring and had recommended Mel for the position. August paid him a visit at home one summer evening. The two graying custodians sat in the backyard smoking camels and drinking grain belt beer. I could see Mom watch them closely through the kitchen window as she peeled potatoes for supper. Nothing was said as we ate, but in my room that night I heard their voices raised in the nearest thing to an argument, the nearest thing to a fight as I can remember them having. It had been decided. Dad had turned down the job and a significant increase in pay. Nothing more was said. He had found the job he liked. Mel was content. He did what he liked. His simple example, I now finally realize, would shape my life. Thank you for joining me. I hope you'll stop back again. May God bless you in your work and in your play. When you're at home and when you are away, you are loved and you matter. And like my dad, I hope you find a way 